Welcome to Driverless. This is Todd Northman and Emmanuel Sanders, both of the Cleveland Hallway of Tucker Ellis. We finish our interview with Professor Mark Geisfeld of New York University School of Law. Professor Geisfeld digs into the regulatory environment for autonomous vehicles. We're pleased you joined us. I hope you enjoy. But just the story arc, and Elon Musk has famously remarked how it's you know, someone breaks their ankle in a Tesla accident, that's front page news, even right. where there's nothing about the Tesla that presented the the difficulty that broke the ankle. And I think yeah. that's right. Yeah. Anything, well, and we just saw the release of the report by NHTSA on the Las Vegas accident at CES, where it turns out that their their evaluation is that the autonomous vehicle had n- was not at fault in that accident. In fact, right. it was the human driver. So, you know, that is, you get a plenty of attention to that. On that testing, I'd just be interested recognizing that this is going to be up to the regulators to decide. But to me, one of the interesting questions is what the mix of simulation is versus road conditions. And where we yeah. see Waymo asserting they've had 10 billion miles of simulation and 10 million miles of road tests. And you've got the RAND sort of study, I guess, isn't quite right, but RAND's thought piece suggesting that a quarter billion miles was really the number of miles we'd need to see to gain some level of confidence in our conclusions. And I can't, in my own mind, figure out how you would determine how useful that simulation mileage is, even recognizing that that ought to be even more valuable than road conditions in a sense. Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, these are all technical questions um, that, that really somebody who understands the programming and so on uh, is only able to answer. And, uh, for that reason, I think that kind of question is particularly suitable for the federal regulators to figure out. Um, you know, if we were to, because we would have to ask these questions in a tort suit if we don't have federal regulations. And in a tort suit, the question is going to be exactly along, the questions are going to be just along the lines that you asked there, is that manufacturer will say, no, we adequately tested it, we did all these you know, millions of simulated miles. And the plaintiff's attorney is going to say, well, those are simulated miles. They're not actual miles. And then we can get into arguments about, did you do enough testing in urban areas rather than on the freeway? Uh, And all of those things would become contested in a tort case as to what what, um, constitutes adequate testing. And so that's just going to be a mess, a uh, battle of experts, uh, and you're requiring the jury to answer, you know, a difficult technical questions of the type that you just posed. Um, so I'd much rather have NHTSA, a body of experts, uh, sit down uh, and try to figure that those questions out to come up with the, the set of conditions, uh, X number of miles under simulation, Y number of miles in urban areas, Z number of miles out on the freeway or whatever, and then you care about weather conditions and a whole host of other factors like that. Um, but to to sit down and work out 
how much, uh, how many miles the vehicle needs to be tested under all those conditions. And then we look at how the vehicle performed under that whole set of conditions. How many crashes was it in? And then we can, you know, uh, reach some kind of uh, conclusion about whether the vehicle is twice as safe as a conventional human driver under those same conditions. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's the complexity of the question, I think, is what makes federal regulation particularly attractive because uh, it's just going to be a mess in the tort context. Right. No, I think for all the reasons that NHTSA is understandably hesitant to promulgate regulation, how much more so should we hate to have a jury faced with these imponderably difficult questions, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how you'd get your mind around evaluating that if you were a jury. No, but they, yeah, but they would because, you know, plaintiff's attorneys are going to get experts who can, you know, make one set of arguments and the defendants will have a, another set of experts taking the opposite position. So that kind of thing happens all the time, um, you know, and so we could expect it to happen in this context for sure. Mm -hmm. well, what do you maybe think, we can um, please go ahead Emmanuel oh no sorry I was just uh, with regard to this sort of a question would you say the same thing should be true in terms of letting the or it be being best to let the federal some sort of regulate NHTSA or um, sort of regulate the kind of technology used or do you think there we should allow the sort of system as it is to sort of regulate let's say lidar versus just cameras in is like which is an argument now in the industry right. or or there, there too we should um, sort of impose regulations from the top down uh, no I think it, I think within the general framework uh, regulatory framework that NHTSA now operates under and the, and the federal legislation that has been proposed and you know that almost got through um, in the last uh, session um, really just contemplates the existing framework you know with with modifications for autonomous vehicles um, and within that framework it's really again just setting performance standards and letting manufacturers figure out the best way to meet it. So if Tesla is right that you don't need LIDAR um, and Tesla can show that its vehicles perform twice as safely as human vehicles, then you know Tesla should be able to uh, commercially distribute those products. Uh, on the other hand, if, if you know Waymo uh, thinks the best way to get there is by uh, using LIDAR and so on and, and similarly can show that its vehicles are twice as safe then it should be able to go ahead and do that. Um, so that's why the, the performance standard um, is critical, um, but how the manufacturer actually satisfies that standard is completely up to, uh, up to the manufacturer. And there's eminent logic behind that uh, approach because you don't want, you know, anytime you're regulating, you worry about it stifling innovation. Um, and so one of the appealing features of this regulatory framework is let's let the manufacturers innovate, um, but let's make sure we guide the direction uh, towards which they're innovating. Chris, that makes a lot of sense. You sort of have the best of actually having a regulatory scheme without stifling the sort of um, uh, opportunity for um, development of new technologies and improving the technology. Yeah, yeah. 
like the, exactly, the, the which, is, which is why, yeah, exactly. So, which is why you know, regulations got a, as a general prop- proposition has a bad name, um, and I think that's part of the reason why a lot of the industry is resistant to being regulated. Um, but you know, regulation, as we just discussed, doesn't need to impede innovation, and regulation can clear up all of this uh, litigation uncertainty that otherwise, uh, you know, all of these manufacturers are going to need to figure out and, uh, you know, litigate their way through, which is going to be quite costly for them. That seems to me like a good transition back to today. And one of the points we wanted to get your thoughts on, Professor, is sort of the potential product liability claims arising in what I'll call a level two plus environment, something like that. Do you yep. see yep. manufacturers being exposed to liability if they're making claims, say, that go beyond the skill set of their vehicle? Yeah, I, I mean, there's definitely uh, uh, significant liability exposure with level two and even more so with level three. Um, you know, because uh, the difficulty that you get with driver complacency, um, the technology, is, there's been plenty of studies that have been done to show this. And, you know, really, all you have to do is kind of think about your own driving behavior, even with simple cruise control on the freeway. Uh, it's sort of, I find it interesting when I'm doing that, how I, I uh, become less attuned because I'm no longer worried about, am I going too fast or too slow relative to what I think will uh, get the highway patrol to pull me over? Um, And so I'm a lot more attentive. Um, And as you have the technology doing more uh, uh, tasks, um, you predictably lull the driver into becoming more complacent about that. now, the standard move in a situation where there's a product accident um, and the consumer was not adequately attentive, the, the manufacturer always claims, well, that's, that's, it's the consumer's fault. Uh, this is an instance of comparative of contributory negligence, and it should either reduce or perhaps bar recovery altogether, but it's the driver's fault. The driver should have taken over. The driver should have paid attention there's not a problem with the product. Um, and when I when you frame the question that way, you actually see, and this is uh, something that I, that I argued in that California piece, that that, that question is not a new one. Uh, we have it for all products. Uh, you know, uh, the law already recognizes that consumers are not automatons. Um, you could design a, a power uh, a circular saw so that it doesn't have any plastic guard on it. Um, and if humans, you know, if the user of the saw never made a mistake, never inadvertently got its hand in the way, um, there would be no risk of injury. Um, but of course, mistakes happen. And as a result, we require the, the saw manufacturer to put a guard on the, around the exposed blade uh, to prevent these kind of inadvertent injuries. Um, and that's essentially the problem that we're talking about, I think, with, with the level two and level three technologies um, is the manufacturers have to figure out a way uh, to make sure that the driver uh, is not uh, does not uh, get overly lulled into a sense of complacency. And it's interesting to see the responses that, you know, the different manufacturers are already coming up with. Uh, it seems pretty clear, 
you know, some have like the, the steering wheel will vibrate or whatever to make sure that and you've got cameras in the car that are observing whether or not the driver is paying attention. You can you can have these various technological interventions to try to make sure that the driver is uh, paying attention. Um, but that's always going to be the tension, I think, with those two technologies is the extent to which um, you can design out this, this problem of uh, cons of uh, user complacency. Mm -hmm. And what would be the test as to the effectivity of that? Because I think you're right. One of the interesting discussions right now is what would be an adequate in-cabin monitoring system and then what sort of information do you need to give to the right uh, the driver do you vibrate the wheel do you have you know the the lights come on do you have an audible warning that you need to pay attention right how well, do we that, judge you know, whether they're effective yeah. enough Right. It's really the same type of inquiry that we use for existing products. You know, it may be, for example, that a plastic guard is not adequate on a saw. It was for a period of time, but it may be possible to design the saw. And there's one there's one inventor who says it is possible to do it so that actually uh, it can sense when it's cutting it to, to flesh and it instantly stops. Um, right. So it's so it's just sort of a, it's always going to be a question. You're going to be comparing one alternative to another. Um, and you're going to be looking for the alternative that is most effective. Uh, at reasonable cost, uh, so you can't answer it in the abstract. You're just you're, the manufacturers are going to be trying out all these different options, and then over time, some will be more effective than others. Um, and those that you know, and so the the technology will presumably evolve in that way. And if you don't, if you don't, uh, if your vehicle um, doesn't have those features, you're going to be vulnerable to liability. Uh, doesn't mean that customs here are necessarily going to define um, the obligations of the manufacturer about how to do this, but it's certainly going to establish a floor that you're going to need to satisfy in order to avoid liability. Mm -hmm. And is that liability traceable to the vehicle operator only, or how do we think about warnings that say, particularly in a ride-hailing environment, if we have say Lyft or Uber able to get an autonomous cab in, how might they warn in that instance? Well, when you talk about Lyft and Uber and uh, commercial car sharing um, situations, there you've got separate issues just involving, you know, the um, uh, that are really in some respects like taxi cabs today. Um, you're a passenger in the back seat. Um, what are the rights that you have um, as a passenger in a taxi that differ from the rights that you might have as the passenger in your friend's car? Um, so, so there's a host of issues that need to be worked out, you know, in that particular dimension. Um, but, you know, leaving, leaving those questions aside, it really, again, if I'm a passenger in a vehicle and the vehicle was designed in a way that did not ensure that the driver was adequately attentive, um, then I'm a foreseeable victim of that uh, particular design flaw in the vehicle. And as a passenger, I could recover from the manufacturer. 
Right. And I guess what I would said, I apologize for didn't do a great job of thinking that through, but in Tesla, for instance, you have that screen where it's the operator before you engage the autopilot yeah. system, you yeah. click through, whereas as a passenger, right. you'd have less, you wouldn't have an opportunity to click through that. I would imagine that even if you did, it would have a different impact on you. I would have right yeah so if yeah, you were yeah. the operator right so there's a so there you know so if we're talking about the driver or trying to recover from the manufacturer you're going to get into these issues of comparative responsibility because if the driver was at fault for not paying attention that's that's going to reduce the driver's recovery in most states um passenger as you're observing isn't can't really be held at fault here because the passenger by definition is just passive um here now maybe the passenger is the reason why the driver wasn't paying attention that would be a separate issue but but you know assuming uh, that's not the case uh we're really just talking about um you know the passenger didn't do anything wrong didn't have any ability to to control the vehicle and uh therefore as a foreseeable victim of the of the problem if there is one uh, you know, would be able to get full recovery from the manufacturer. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Emmanuel, did you have? Um, I, I was wondering um, if you maybe could shed a little bit more light on um, an issue that I think we touched on, but, but didn't delve into deeply, which was um, the bystander problem as it applies mm, yeah. in particularly in the context here, uh, I mean, um, in your article without describing it myself, I, you, you, you mentioned that this is not a novel problem, the idea of um, yeah. there's not sort of reciprocal risk um, and not a choice by the bystander to be subject to any sort of risk, but maybe this is or isn't different in the context of autonomous vehicles. Yeah, yeah. No, so that yeah, this 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 problem has definitely got the public's attention. I mean, any time I give a presentation about autonomous vehicle liability to an audience that's you know not a academic legal audience, but say the National Association of Insurance Commissioners or something like that, invariably there will be questions about. Uh, the one that you just asked, you know, uh, what about the bystander? What, how are we going to regulate the programmer who clearly, even with a neural network, you're still setting up, uh, you know, uh, parameters on what you deem to be a successful outcome. Um, so is the successful outcome to protect the occupants of the vehicle at all costs? So even if it means saving one person in the vehicle and killing 10 on the roadway, that would be deemed to be a successful outcome uh, from the programmer's perspective? Or should we instead sacrifice the person in the vehicle in order to save a greater number on the road? Um, and so, you know, it's so that so once the issue gets framed that way, people get, you know, uh, uh, understandably interested in that. It's like, how, you know, somebody, a programmer, is basically making life or death decisions. Um, that's really quite amazing. And we should think 
pretty hard about how we want to go about regulating that. Um, now, all of that is absolutely correct, uh, and what I love about this question and, and the way that I that I answer it in these uh, the context that I was describing, I always say, you know, you're absolutely right. It's a fundamentally important question, and and to reduce tort law down to a single question is essentially the one that you just asked right now, because. We are always making decisions that in some level uh, affects, you know, our life or death decisions uh, regarding other individuals. Anytime you get into a car and start driving down the road today, there is somebody else who might get killed as a result of your decision. Um, and we want to make sure that when you're out there risking injury to others out there in the world that you adequately account for their interests. And that is what tort law has been doing for centuries. That's why we have tort law, is that unfortunately individuals are not always going to adequately account for how their actions might harm others. Um, so it's an it's a interesting question. It's a hard question. But, in, but of all of the questions posed by autonomous vehicles, I think this one is the easiest because it just poses that fundamental question that is addressed by the default rule of negligence liability. Uh, reasonable care requires that you impartially consider the interests of those people who might be foreseeably harmed by your conduct. And that is going to apply to the conduct of a programmer of an autonomous vehicle, just as it would apply to the conduct of you when you're behind the wheel. Um, and so any, any program that is designed to protect the occupants at the expense of uh, pedestrians and other bystanders is going to be unreasonably dangerous and subject to negligence liability. Uh, you have to impartially consider the interests of everybody. You don't favor occupants over bystanders, you treat them all equally. Um, and it's uh, based on conversations I've had with the industry, that's how they understand this problem as well. Uh, they think it's, they don't see a big problem here. They understand that they need to treat everybody equally. Thank you so much. That that that's um, a really um, sort of not simple as in not not adequate, but a really simple and straightforward approach um, to 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 the problem. As as many of your solutions are, which are sort of um, approaching AV as something not that we just wave our hands at, um, but that we engage with. Uh, critically with the tools we we have at hand already and see whether or not they're adequate to the task before we throw them all out and start building a new system from the bottom up. And um, I'd say that, that that's sort of uh, uh, one of the things that is so refreshing and and uh, compelling about about your approach, which is that that there are solutions to these problems, and they, we don't need to re restart our whole tort system to be like a no-fault system. Or, or I mean, clearly there will be impacts on on liability doctrines and insurance, and but they're not they're not like we don't have to imagine a Star Wars world where everything is just vastly different from our own. Um, and um, I don't know, Todd, do you have uh, any further questions you, you wanted to pursue? No, I was actually just pondering whether that answer wasn't really the perfect wrap-up to the, the interview, in a sense, because it does yeah. frame it. 
Yeah, quite nicely. And, and Manuel's uh, <laughs> summary, I thought, was actually the perfect wrap-up there. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I was thinking the same thing as I was, as I was hearing uh, Manuel summarize it all. Well, well, great. We really thank appreciate you your time, Professor. This has been terrific. And Manuel, you're welcome to say thank you as well. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Professor. And I hope um, maybe we'll, I know now it's the summer, and um, but maybe we'll have a chance to, to, to chat. And uh, um, I'd love to hear what other areas you're working on and, uh, and just to catch up. That'd be great. So yeah, I appreciate. I always love talking about this stuff. So you know, happy to participate moving forward or whatever. If if uh, if some other uh, something that else that comes up that you think I might be helpful on. Thank you. Yeah, that's so great. Much. We really appreciate it. And just as a preview of coming attractions, Emmanuel and I actually have a speaking uh, engagement in New York in late September on autonomous vehicles. So maybe we'll try to touch base and see if we can. Good, copy good. Or something. Excellent. So, anyway, really appreciate your time. Have a terrific summer. This has been great. Thanks. And we will work on this and let you know when it when it drops. Great. Okay. Good talking Thanks. to you all. Bye. And again, all right. Take care. Thanks you too. Bye. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye bye.